Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Tuesday. April 25th. Right. All right. Let's 2023. Get, you're hesitating. Let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, as usual, we're late. We're, we're right on time. Whenever we do it, it's on time. All right. So okay. we've been, did you want to say something at the outset or should we just launch into the week? Go ahead. Okay. Lunch. Right. Lunch we, away. We have uh, stuff to report on. We had uh, a retirement event on uh You had a Sunday retirement evening. event. Yeah. Well, we all experienced the event because you were there with me. Uh, but it was uh, the law firm where I work with uh, gives retirement a retirement dinner for a group of retirees, uh, ideally, uh, every six months or so or maybe every year or so. And I was in that group. On Sunday, the, the little glitch was that this was initially scheduled for three years ago, uh, and because I retired a little more than three years ago, but it couldn't take place, of course, because of COVID. Postponed yeah. several times. Postponed several times. Uh, and then finally, they made the film. Well, well, well you're jumping <laughs> and ahead. Facilitated. They're jumping ahead. So, uh, anyway, the event uh, was this Sunday, um, and. Uh, the way this is done now at the firm is that there's a presentation with respect to each of the, in this case, six honorees in front of a group of retired partners and active partners, let's call it 300 people. And uh, it's each um, honor honoree session is comprised of two elements. One is a film that the firm had made, and I'll come back to that. And then the second is remarks by the particular honoree. And the film is kind of interesting, or at least the way it's made is interesting. And uh, this was a new thing. What the firm did was it hired an outfit who was going to make a little feature in, in a documentary type sense, but not entirely serious, to give a flavor of the person being retired. Because it's a large enough law firm, not everybody knows everyone and certainly doesn't know everything about that person. Well, and, they're trying to craft a tribute. Yes, really. they're trying to craft a tribute, to be sure. That's what they're trying to do. And uh, and what, what was the most notable about this experience to us was the amount of, amount of uh, time, effort, money, et cetera, that went into it. Because what uh, it entailed was the outfit hired by the firm uh, sent, I think it was 15, 16 people to our house, each of them having a huge piece of equipment in their hands. Uh, and they spent the entire day, and I mean eight hours, uh, filming and recording uh, and, uh, you know, redoing whatever. You know, it was like making a movie, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, it was incredible, an incredible effort. Now you know what uh, Beyonce goes through. <laughs> Right, it's just. A, I'm not complaining. It takes a lot. To no, make no. A honestly, video. honestly, it was quite interesting. Okay. To me, it was yeah. quite an interesting process. So I'm not complaining about the process. Uh, you know, uh, I might question whether all that's necessary to make the three minute film they made. I'm not questioning that. The answer is no. It's okay. not. So there's a dinner. Yeah. And <laughs> Jump ahead. The, the, yeah. I mean, let's not spend the whole okay, podcast fine. on this. Right. Yeah. There's a dinner, yeah. and uh, there's a film and a speech. Exactly right. For each guy. Yeah. So okay. that's what we did. And so uh, what did you want to say about that? I don't want to say anything about it. it. You know what? What? It was great to see everybody. Yes. Number um, one. It was you far had, and away. It was you, great to you see You had everybody. many colleagues you hadn't seen in years. Most, you know, many of them retired. All the yeah, more reason so not you, to see you them. you don't run into them. That's absolutely the true. Woods. So it was a fun event for so that reason. So you got to catch up with people. Yes. 
And uh, it also, you, you know, you got to give a speech. You enjoy giving speeches. Yeah, right? yeah it's You're true. good at it. Yeah, thank you. Know, you. You're a litigator. It's your job to yeah. speechify. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to see you in action again. Mm. And I think everybody enjoyed it. Okay, good. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, know, so it was... The thing is, it's always at a fancy schmancy place. For yes. years, it was at the Four Seasons, mm-hmm. okay? Um, a couple of times, it was at the Rainbow Room. I can't remember, honestly. Uh, something like that. And now, this time it was at a very nice uh, restaurant. It's called the Peak Restaurant. Called the Peak. It was on the 101st floor right. of uh, a building at Hudson Yards. 30 Hudson Yards, 101st floor, which is... And then just below it, a floor below is sort of an outside observation deck, which I am told from the website is the highest observation deck in the Western Hemisphere. So it was an extraordinary view. Yeah. The the bar area, the cocktail area, looked out over, yes. I think we could see all the way to your parents' home in Jericho, Long Island. I think we could see North Carolina. but We but, definitely could see, We you know, we saw the Statue of Liberty, yeah. the Verrazano Bridge. I think in, in your parlance, it was a fancy schmancy place. So the, but we had been years ago... There, there was a retirement dinner at Windows on the World. Absolutely. Right. So that was pretty the high last up. time we were that, was pretty high that up. high up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So many, it was many years ago. Listen, we're small town people. We're country folk, you know. So uh, that was this was a big deal for us, right? Is that a fair statement? Yes. Yes. You know, we had to get <laughs> into clothes we hadn't worn in a long time. Yes. I had, I had to wear heels well, yes. for hours. And, and, and you looked fantastic. Hours. You looked Thank fantastic. You. Thank you. Not too shabby yourself. Um, so it it was all in all uh, a good event. Yeah, it was and a fun event. Well, I am disappointed they did not give you a watch. <laughs> they don't give a watch. That's old fashioned, honey. Okay. Old fashioned. I mean, who wears a watch anymore anyway? Uh, I wear a watch. Well, I don't. So in any event, so that was that. The other big I event. Enjoy a good watch. Okay, I, I'll buy you the watch. But the, I have uh, lots of watches. I don't need more watches. The um, but I don't need grief about wearing them. No, no, no okay. grief. The other very interesting thing we did last week was we went on a fantastic bike ride. I don't know if it was interesting. It was delightful. It was what, okay. what makes it not interesting. It was a great bike ride. It was stunning. You planned the bike ride, and then frankly, when you say to me, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning, let's go on this very strange bike ride that requires us to go over a lot of terrain, which is questionable, and uh, may end up putting us in a lot of traffic, and might be twenty-five miles, might be twenty-eight miles. Who knows? Uh, it's really, it's with some trepidation that I agree to go forward, but I did. A while ago, you know, a couple of years ago, they built a new giant bridge yes. across the Delaware River at uh, Scudder Falls, they call it, mm-hmm. um, Route 95, okay? And they, uh, maybe a year ago, maybe a little bit less, completed a pedestrian bridge along that side a pedestrian that. slash bike riding bridge yes yeah. um that hooks up to the canal paths right. the 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 well, let me back up this will be clear to people so we're in pennsylvania so this is a uh, bridge that takes one it goes over the delaware and links pennsylvania and new jersey right okay right. and there are you know uh canal paths 
um, you know, yeah, right. walking towpaths, paths, towpaths. towpaths. So we take the New Jersey route on down. both sides, right? But 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 towpaths are not highways. So you know, you don't know what it's like a quarter mile down. You don't know how crowded it might be. In this case, it wasn't, or how rough it might be, or if it ends, like bike lanes, they kind of end once in a while. And then you're on roads, so you have to be, uh, you know. But but Javier and Mark had done the ride. Uh, don't, don't. It, you can go. So our house is about twelve miles from this point. Yeah. As as the crow flies. Yeah, it is as the crow flies because okay. it has to be more like fifteen miles. As the turkey vulture flies. Right, but the way okay. it measured out, um, it's fifteen miles. Uh, so um, we knew people who had done it. People had and done it and survived it. We got up on Friday morning. It was a beautiful day. Right. It was the right temperature. Yeah. I said, "Let's do it," and you said, "Let's do it." Yeah. And uh, we did it. We, we, you know, we put some M and M's and peanuts <laughs> in a bag, and. Headed off. That's right. And so, you know, we were a little bit underprepared. No, but look, but the point is, it, it was beautiful. Yeah, the, and that, the towpath was actually in excellent shape. Yeah. There was, there's one bad section that's very narrow, yeah. narrow and has a lot of people yeah, but, on it. We avoided that. Yeah, look. But, 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 uh, but that's not Most the of the towpath is broad and flat. Yeah. And look, I'm not selling people on the towpath. Good. The point is, it was beautiful. And I'm not a person who cares about scenery too terribly much. But it was like breathtaking. I'm which, applauding. Yeah. The towpath. Okay, good. It's S- not you know somebody <laughs> has God. gone to the expense. That's right. Of creating and maintaining okay. this for our enjoyment. All right. And All right. exercise. Anyway. And I say thank you to them. Good. It's an excellent towpath. Well, there's a good transition there, but I'll get to that in a second. But my point is. It's a beautiful time of year in Pennsylvania. It's stunning, as you pointed out. It's the change of seasons, whether it be, you know, the spring or the fall change of seasons out here. It's stunning. And you're just seeing everything green up right away, like overnight. And it's kind of amazing. Yes. Yeah, so it's a it beautiful was be- day. It was beautiful. And and 28 miles is enough. Yeah, it was, it was fun. 28 miles will give you a workout. Yes, yes. Uh, Some might say 25 miles. And you were on a kind of a heavy bike. You were on a heavy bike. Yeah, that's right. bike than I was. That's right. You were on the old Jamis. Jamis, yes. Uh, so in any event, so that was great. But speaking of your point about you know throwing out uh, kudos, as you put it, the people maintain the towpath. Uh, you know what's not maintained? The roads are not maintained. So uh, particularly on the Pennsylvania side of the world, as opposed to New Jersey, I mean, there are potholes that, you know, you could put a small Buick in. And uh, I don't even think it was a rough winter. Well, it, but 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 there you have it. You have it, look. It, I'm I'm not going to grouse about the potholes. I have a particular. It wasn't, it wasn't a winter with a lot of snow, right? Okay, but there were extreme changes in temperature. If you say so, and that's what really aids and abets. You the are an expert in this. That's why I'm glad I'm talking to you. The freeze thaw phenomenon. Here, here's the issue. Okay, since you seem prepared uh, to to but, address you know, this it. Guy's, it, it, there was an it article. Some work. I'm not blaming to fix anybody. These potholes. My I accept. That it's too much to ask for the uh, local government to be on top of fixing potholes, which takes me to the point that there was an article that played in a lot of media about Arnold Schwarzenegger in California going out to the street in front of his house uh, with a bag of asphalt, or I think it was tar, actually, and he was fixing a pothole that he said, this just has to be fixed. This is crazy. Um, And of course, it got coverage because it was Schwarzenegger, who used to be the governor of California, course and uh it was a little bit of a hubbub because then the word got to the mayor of los angeles 
And uh, she said, uh, gee, uh, I wish he wouldn't have done that. Uh, you know, what he should have done, what would have been better is if he would just call their office. I'm sure we would have gotten to it right away. Uh, but it does raise the issue of um, taking your point that there's no way for the local government to keep up with the potholes. Uh, what do you think about the idea of people just saying, hey, you know, let's just take care of this. Let's just come out with a bag of tar and let's just fix it's it. It's not a bag of tar. What, what are it? I'm not the guy to do this, no. okay? All right. Yeah, you're not the guy. I'm not the guy. Uh, but but, um, but if Arnold can do it, I can do it is my point. No, you, you can do it because – Remember Jay Shapiro used I understand. To do it. But, okay, but he so but, Jay Shapiro no, but he did it because his wife, his wife his wife was was an official. No, 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 no. They no. had no official No, no. They they were not doing this in official capacity. Their little cul de sac oh. or whatever it was was a private lane. Oh, well it's a private lane doesn't matter. And it doesn't um, count. They doesn't. were trying to uh they I guess uh, they were trying um, they were trying to get it repaved. Yeah. And uh, the, not all the neighbors were would chip in right. to have it redone. Yeah. And so Jay and his wife would just go out there with the patching stuff and repair the potholes yeah, look, themselves. I, forget and and they they also noticed the holes in our driveway. Yeah, and they okay? so something and, should and be done. They're ready to go. Yeah. That, uh, they could tell us how to do it. Yeah, but so we here's but here's the question. You're avoiding but, the hypothetical. So let's put aside the expense. Let's say that you and I can afford to buy whatever is necessary in terms of materials to fix a pothole or two, or somebody else who, who's who right in, you know is joins a street that has a terrible pothole. What do you think of the, of the idea that people are allowed to go out and take action on their own without involving the government yeah, in fixing well, the pothole? I I I don't think it's the greatest idea. I mm. mean, it, it's a nice idea that we all pitch in right. and try to make um, our neighborhood a better place. Yeah. But in reality, you get all kinds of uh, levels of workmanship. (laughs) You could also, I mean, people drive rather um, swiftly on our road. I wouldn't want to be out there. Well, they're not the Uh, road that we're talking about. Yeah, we're not very close to the road. The motorcycles coming by. And uh, I don't mind fixing my driveway. I don't think I should be out in the middle of the street uh, taking it upon myself. I'm not sending you out to do it, but my point is... Do you, like, would the Schwarzenegger do the right thing? Should a private citizen who's willing to do it and willing to pay for it take matters in his own hands? Because otherwise, it's not getting fixed. Well, he says that he, you know, ha- has been begging for this and it didn't happen. Right, okay? right. And I'm that sure... He in the it, neighborhood... Uh, and, but, really... Yeah. He just wants the publicity. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, come on. Come on. I mean, he's yeah, so a celebrity. You're dodging the hypothetical. You know, he's getting older. Yeah. He needs to be. Listen, I don't in- care about Schwarzenegger. The real point I'm asking is, how do you feel about people being allowed to do this on their own initiative? And you're not answering the question. I just said it's not a great idea. Yes, but what's I a better clearly. idea? What's a better idea? They just still have the pothole. That's the alternative. It's not going to get fixed. These things do get fixed. Okay? Oh. Don't, you know what? What? Uh, remember our road was closed down. They fixed an awful lot of the issues with our, our road, actually. Uh. There are a couple of bad ones left. Right, but we'll frankly, uh, we got pretty unscathed. All right. Look, I'm just trying to help the town out. No, you're just in cranky man No, road. I don't care about no. the potholes. I'm just trying, <laughs> I, I'm trying to help people out. How are you trying to help people out? By uh, doing my part to fix it. You know, the... random people wandering out in the road to do repairs whenever they feel All like right. it. You know? Okay. I don't think 
that's the solution. Okay. I, I like to see, it's nice to see someone take a situation, um, you know, by the horns and solve the problem. That does feel good. Yeah. But the, the reality of it on a large scale could be horrifying. All right. Okay, I won't do it. All right, go on. What do, what do you have? You have your museum thing, right? No, I don't. Yes, you do. You told me we could talk oh, about oh, our new show. Oh, yes, we have to talk about new. We, we, you found a new show. You know, we just finished watching True Detective, which is a little dark, but uh, some good performances. Yeah, so I've picked a lot of bad shows lately. Yeah, well, you didn't pick True I Detective. I some real snoozers. Yeah. Uh, but, um, so, you know, it, I, it wasn't, uh, True Detective was actually good, but it was the darkest of the dark. Yeah. It was rough to watch, yeah, um, and uh, but very good acting. I think we've mentioned this before, right? Um, this episode one that we watched. What do you call it? Not episode. Season one. Season one. Yeah. Okay, but I was, you know, cruising around looking for other possibilities. Right now, I have to say I'm a little tired of detective shows right. at this point. Nonetheless, <laughs> Nonetheless, those turn out to be the best things. Nonetheless, uh, lately, um, and so I found an Italian one. Yeah, Rocco Schiavone. Okay, or is it Schiavone? I think you got Schiavone. I'll go with that. Really? Yeah. Um, and it just popped up. It's on. You can get it through Passport. Passport. PBS. Masterpiece Theater? Is no, it PBS. part of Masterpiece? No. P- no. It's, it's PBS Passport. Passport. Yeah. Uh, PBS. And it's based on a detective series, a series of detective novels written by Antonio Manzini. Okay. An yeah. Italian writer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple of the, uh, some of the novels have been made into uh, TV shows. They're in Italian. So we're watching subtitles. Mm-hmm. But the great thing about it is, uh, first of all, it's not super dark, right? Definitely not. But it's not... Um, the detective is uh, not Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. No. And he's very um, complicated, yeah. shall we say. Yeah. And... Uh, He's got some dark corners. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Okay. But uh, he's there's a lot more to him. I mean, they the show really uh, gives you tantalizing little pictures of his personality and his private life. I got to say, nine out of ten of the detective stories we've been watching. Yeah. And the people are just. They're not too, um, what would you say? I don't know what you, I have no idea what you're trying to say. They're just, we don't know much about their private lives. But but that's a style of television. The idea is like the law and order style. You don't get into the personal lives of of the protagonist. Right. Okay. And this one. But it's very limited. You know, it's, you know, it's just the story. And, uh, but more than that, the detectives seem to have no life. Okay. They seem to, if you go back, if you do go back to their apartment, the apartment's always bare. Yeah. Right. And uh, they're not interested in food. They're not interested in. So this guy is is sort of a guy who's kind of doing this and, you know, he's not, uh, he's not totally into it. He's kind of into it. He wants to do his job, but he wants to live his life outside. And he's got, uh, how shall we say, appetites. 
There right. is, uh, you know, is several... a lot of bad behavior. Well, what you what you mean by bad behavior is you mean sex. Is that, is, no, no, is... no. He's all, and he's also uh, smoking dope on the job. He is smoking like, dope. He will on close the job. his door right. and, and, and open the window. Right. And uh, you know, and he's uh, he's on the take. Tamsin, you're giving these are spoiler alerts, you know. Um, so he's not, uh, you know, he's not. The but he has a, a rough sense of justice, which you know he uh, applies to the various situations. They want you to believe that on the one hand he's a prototypical Italian male in a superficial way that he's all about talking about women and uh, not necessarily totally into his job, but he's interested he in having a quality of life. He's very into clothes, and at the same time. As you peel away the layers, they're saying, well, he's not exactly as unprincipled as perhaps you thought from the outset. And, you know, you get to his core pretty quickly. He has a code of honor, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we right. shall see. We shall see. The jury is yeah, out. I think he has it's... principles. It just he, may be different than yes, yeah. everyone else's. Um, so Rocco Schiavone yeah. um, is how I would say it. And uh, it's again, it's available on PBS. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's a little bit different. It's different. Right. I mean, and, and the first show, he's been uh, sent away from Rome for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And he's in the mountains. He's in the ski country. Right. And he's totally a fish out of water. Um, so it's... Uh, and he, he refuses to buy ski boots or anything that is sensible to wear in the snow, snow because he's into his shoes. So no, he does uh, at that, uh, spoiler alert again. You're un- out of control. Well, you make these proclamations. Well, that's the way it true. was at the outset. That's you know, then uh, things happen. All right, go ahead. Now get into the art thing. This is what we want to hear about. Well, if you, if you uh, can make sense of this. More, you're a, more scandal in the you, art world. If you can make you're sense a, of this story, you're a genius. No, it's not that. this story. Okay, is is worth reading. Okay, either uh, online. An ancient cup's bit by bit rebirth, yeah, and the story that's behind it, by Graham Bowley and Tom Mashberg, in the Sunday New York Times, uh, and it's just the story about um, a Greek drinking cup called mm-hmm. a kylix that was smashed to smithereens and put back together. And the question is, did somebody smash it on purpose and then sell all these different bits, bit by bit to various people, including to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, over time to make money and to avoid um, being caught for looting? Okay, Mm -hmm. so were these things brought into museums and the country illegally by... Destroying it, yes, but so but and but having just, somebody put just, it together. Just to get back to a step that was kind of crossed pretty quickly, what happened here was there was uh, a someone identified over some time where these various pieces were and bought up the various pieces, and and then they put it together. Right? That's not true. Stay out of it. No. No, stay out the, of the it. point of it. The, the center of it is the Met. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The first shards of the pottery arrived at the Met in 1978. Yeah. Okay. That have to do with this particular pot. Okay. Then a few years later, um, uh, more come to the Met. They're bought, you know, the first batch was bought from a Swiss dealer. Second batch, the Met bought some more shards, pieces, 
and from a dealer out in LA, yeah. you know, and then uh, a few years later, uh, some more come to the Met. Okay, the curator at the Met, okay, Dietrich von Bothmann, uh, notices, you know, is noticing that these pieces that there are shards that are that belong together that are pieces of a puzzle pieces of one big wine drinking cup and they go together okay mm -hmm. also it turns out over time he has purchased pieces of this personally yes okay and which he eventually does give to the Met. Okay. Now, you think that's a little weird that a curator of a museum is buying perhaps from the same dealers as the museums are buying? Isn't this awkward? Isn't this... Um, yeah, I don't think it's that weird. Improper? No. Yeah. No. Does, yeah. Especially if he ends up giving it to the Met. I mean, but the no, point but is, then it's, you know, he's crossing the line between, you know, representing the Met and representing himself. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it doesn't no. trouble me. The Met, the Met now discourages people from, they, they say, you know, we don't, uh, at the time Von Bothmer was doing this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Met said it was basically okay yeah. for curators to also be collectors. Right. But now they discourage really? curators from collecting in the same areas and periods that they would be um, curating and buying really? for the Met. Okay. Anyway, so the big question is, so the, the, these different pieces came to the Met over time. Right. Okay. And uh, the question is, um, was Von Bothmer into it, in on it? In on it in the sense that, first of all, you're, you're presuming that something happened. You're presuming that someone actually did break it. You're presuming that uh, yeah. somebody originally at the source, wherever um, these uh, uh, pieces came of pottery from. were dug up yeah. in an Etruscan tomb. Right. Okay. And somebody, somebody has decided the way I'm going to market this right. is to smash it up okay, so and you're, sell it It's piece a presumption upon a presumption. Number okay. one is that people, that someone did that. Number two is that the curator was in on it. So it's two different presumptions. That they were using him or that, you know, isn't yeah. it strange? Right. And first of all, he was acknowledged as somebody who just knew, um, had such a knowledge, mm -hmm. okay, of um, all these fragments mm -hmm. all over the world that he would remember, he would see a piece in Paris and remember he had seen something in Berlin mm -hmm. at, a, at a museum or whatever, at a collection, and know they go together. I mean, mm -hmm. he was just like, uh, now they have computers that will do that. Okay. So did they um, conclude that the... No, well, you on? know, people have all kinds of ideas. Uh, the um, Actually, you know, the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's Office is looking at some of these oh, things. Great, you know, great. You know, well, there's a, there's a lot of interest in, yeah. you know, uh, he... in. Items that have been looted from mm -hmm. countries and brought into right. this country or brought in or other countries away from their original country illegally. Okay. Yeah. So he was involved in the purchase of the Euphronius vase uh, years ago, uh, purchased in 1972, that was bought. Um, it had been smashed to smithereens and rebuilt, put together and sold to the Met for a million dollars. Okay. It has now been returned to Italy. Okay. So there was, there's a precedent um, for this so kind of behavior. there is a precedent. Okay. And there's a precedent for thinking that he, you know, 
he has some, he had some link. He passed away in 2009. Ah, you didn't um, tell me that. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, but, <laughs> you know, some people say, look, it's just crazy. You know, these guys could not go to this much trouble. Right. You know, they're not, you know, um, they're not going to bother. Number one, you could make more money. You would really break something up. It, the original whole object would be much more valuable, much more than lucrative pieces, right. than even selling the pieces right. bit by bit. Right. Okay. Now, they do acknowledge that to the extent that dealers had pieces, yeah. they would like parcel out pieces one at a time and as an institution got closer to putting something together yeah you know they would suddenly come up with the key one and it would be a very high price right you know the prices went up right um so they they did play with that but people were very skeptical a that anyone would sit down and smash something and then try to make money out of it and two that um you know it's uh they say uh the prosecutor office says, well, look at the brakes. Some of the brakes look like they're modern brakes. And also, do you notice how when they're broken, lots of times the figures uh, are kind of complete? Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously a fragment with a figure on it would be uh, more valuable, would be of more interest right. than something not. So he says, Is, isn't that pretty... Um, All right. So, am I correct that no conclusion is reached here? No conclusion has been reached. In fact, most of the uh, it you know it's one of those great stories that the Times builds up and brings out and l- leads one to believe has got to be the case yeah. that uh, these people are really all uh, um, you know In part of conspiracy. But they don't say it. Well, they don't, no, they do say it over and over again, but they, everything they, every, you know, there's a lot of uh, indications, contraindications, um, you know, it doesn't seem like there's the necessary proof okay. for it. But anyway, if you like your, um, you know, ancient art intrigues. Uh, well, we'll see, you know, I, you know. This is a pretty good one, but you know, I mean, Von we'll Bothra was like a god uh, in the world of. Classical curators. Is that right? And historians. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Well, um, this so, shows up on the Schiavone series. Then we'll, we'll learn more. We'll, we'll get the real story. Uh, all right. Well, we just have a couple more things here. There was an article that uh, in the Times called, Your email does not constitute my emergency. And it addressed the issue as to whether when you get an email, you have an obligation to respond immediately. And I have found over the years, you know, in work and whatever, that some people have always assumed that that's the case. As soon as you get an email, you know, you got to respond within minutes, irrespective of the content of the email. And I never understood why, because I don't think when people send an email, they are necessarily expecting an instant response because they don't expect you to be staring at your phone or your computer when they send it. So why uh, drive yourself crazy responding in the first 30 seconds? But a lot of people do. I don't know. I always thought um, emails mainly are people send emails because they need to at least ask for the information now. Yeah, you need right. to do it now. You need to get it off your chest now. Right. You need to follow up. It's on your mind. It. Right. right. It's on your mind. I didn't, I wasn't aware. I have, 
I seem to have a lot of correspondents who, if it's an email, they don't worry about answering it in any particular time frame. Yeah, I, okay? I, I'm that sympathetic. If you send somebody a text, yeah. it seems like you should answer right away. Right. People kind of assume, and, and you get the feeling that with a text, people think you're looking at your phone every minute. They assume you're going to respond within, right. you know, yeah, of course, five it, minutes it, it, or less. It depends on the, the substance. Emails, too. I've never... Had the experience well, you that people are feel obligated correct. to answer. You are correct. Congratulations. The Times right. says you were correct. Uh, and look, I have kind of the opposite view of perhaps the prevailing view that the Times is kind of trying to tear down. And my, I feel that even if I have something to say when I see an email, I say to myself, you know, let it sit for an hour because I'll think about the response. I'll give a better response. I'll give a more thoughtful response. Even if I don't sit there and stew about it, I just know the way my brain works. It's, things are going to work their way through. So when I sit down an hour or two hours later or something and I take a look at emails and start addressing them, the response is, is going to be more sensible and more useful uh, if I don't respond right away. So maybe that's rationalization. But uh, that's the way I see it. All right, we, we cleared that up. <laughs> no one has I mean, I do write emails that have questions that I, I don't ever get answers. I, I wonder if people That's a different say, subject. You know? Is that is, is it just uh, people think I'm just having a conversation? It's just a, a hypothetical or, <laughs> or something. I'd like to think that doesn't happen all that much. Um, so we have a couple of obituaries to close with. Uh, one is Todd Hames passed away, and Todd Hames uh, was uh, the leader uh, over the last number of years of the Roundabout Theater Company, and uh, it's an interesting story. Um, he's he passed away at the age of sixty six, and I would have thought he was much older just because he's been a figure at Roundabout for so long. But he started at a very young age, at the age of something like twenty six. Yeah, he was <clears> a baby. Yeah, uh, and he got a very responsible position very early on, and he has an interesting background in that he didn't have a theater background. He was an MBA who was interested in, in business, basically. Although he said. He decided he wasn't really interested in selling, uh, you know, Nivea face cream. So he had an interest in the arts to some extent, but he saw it very much from a business perspective. And, his, and that, that was early days when he got his MBA. Yeah. Um, the idea of linking um, your MBA to arts business, mm-hmm. you know, uh, was still kind of in its infancy. Well, the timing was right because... He uh, he became he joined Roundabout as managing director in in 1983 when he was 26, uh, and they were in trouble. They were uh, Roundabout being a, a nonprofit theater company, uh, and and we were subscribers for a number of years at Roundabout. Um, and he uh, they don't they they identify a lot of the shows that he championed and the direction in which he steered them. And there are all these shows which, you know, you would recognize the names that we enjoyed at Roundabout, uh, you know, um, it's a Cabaret, Soldier's Play, uh, View from the Bridge, Anna Christie, Pajama Game, Nine Assassins, Anything Goes, Sideman, The Humans. I mean, these were shows that, you know, they're not uh, the music man, uh, they're not the sound of music. But so they're not obvious popular shows. They're not children's shows. They're not frozen. But and especially the straight plays, the humans, you know, it's a fairly serious show. But these shows did well. And frankly, they were very good. Uh, They were quite enjoyable. And that's sort of a hard thing to navigate. You want to do something that's uh, artistically adventurous and artistically rewarding. On the one hand, on the other hand, 
you're running a business. And it's that last part that I just feel he took much more seriously than a lot of artistic directors. And the way he puts it, it's kind of in a self-effacing way. And he says, look, my taste just happened to match up with the taste of the theater-going public in New York City. It's, I don't think it's quite that simple. But, uh, and he also, at the same time, again, self-deprecating, says, look, I'm not a great artist, so I'm never going to advocate strongly for something that's highly artistic but not broadly appealing. It's just not me. It's not going to happen. In any event, uh, Roundabout benefited from his sensibilities, and, uh, you know, it was a powerhouse now. Powerhouse. And they have different theater venues, and he did, you know, some clever things, including getting them into a house that would have theater theaters have shows that would qualify for the Emmys because he recognized that, uh, not the Emmys, the Tonys, that that would, uh, that was sort of the gold standard. You could attract different writers if you said you're going to have a Tony nomination or possibly you could attract different actors. So you get a different level of show just because you're at a Tony venue. Um, so it, it, it's an interesting story. I mean, I, we're involved or I'm involved with a nonprofit theater. So I read stories like this. Say, so how do you navigate? Uh, and uh, Hames says, look, I'm not 100% highbrow. This is not what I am, but I'm semi-serious. And uh, he did it for Roundabout. There's no question about it. Do you remember how we became subscribers? No. I had heard about their uh, production. Of the, they did a revival of uh, 1776. Okay. And we took the family to see it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the kids were a little bit, uh, I think Granger was, uh, somebody had played the soundtrack for them in civics class. Okay. Okay. So they're still, you know, uh, not even middle school age yet. And uh, we all went in to see it. And it was a terrific production. Right. And it was a pretty small theater. Right. uh, At the time. Uh, And uh, we... We really enjoyed it. We had, uh, I mean, Zeke did sleep through the second half. But he was six years old, probably. Um, And um, so uh, a week or so later, I got a phone call. And they said, this is Roundabout Theater. Mm -hmm. How did you like 1776? And I said, well, we loved it. They said, well, we'd like you to consider, you know, signing up for a subscription of more shows. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't know, you know, like how many, how much would it cost? What would they be? But I'm saying that's marketing. Yeah. Okay. They touched base directly yeah. with me. It it wasn't, it was sort of a cold call, but not really. Yeah. They had a reason to. Uh, well, to, it's interesting that they called you. I mean, yeah. I mean, anybody it's interesting would that I picked up yeah. because I'm not all that interested right. in uh, random sales calls. Uh, so, but, and then we, you're right. We were, you know. Many years. Tw- uh, like 20 years. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was a rewarding subscription. I but, mean, I'm glad uh, we did you it. you know, that's, uh, so there you have, you know, um, marketing savvy. Yeah. From you know, I look. I I think uh, Hames deserves a lot of credit. I think Roundabout. Yeah, surely there are people who look at Roundabout's uh, roster and say, "Well, that's not for me," or "That's not sufficiently ambitious," or whatever. I mean, I, it doesn't have to be appealing to every single person. But the idea that he successfully navigated, you know, the shoals of being uh, somewhat artistic on the one hand and Commercially, and the rent, and cur- yeah, commercial the on the other hand is is kind of amazing. Which is interesting because uh, the the other um, obituary that we have is Blair Tyndall, mm-hmm. who um, died at uh, the age of sixty three. Uh, her fiance says from uh, cardiovascular disease, and she wrote 
the book Sex, Drugs, and Classical Music, which uh, inspired uh, Mozart's Jungle. Mozart in in the Jungle. Mozart in the Jungle. Yeah. Um, The TV series about a... um, About an orchestra in New York City. Yeah, Yeah, which, uh, you know, had certain... A lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff that had nothing to do with classical music. And and when she wrote the book, which apparently is filled with various sexcapades and uh, things of that sort, uh, people questioned whether is that really real? Do classical musicians really do this? And uh, I th- think she's, she was quite insistent saying, yeah, yeah, it's a hotbed of that kind of activity. She says, people always seem shocked that musicians would have sex. I mean, where do little musicians come from? Yeah, there you go. Um, well, so good... she, she, she's telling about, uh, you know... Um, you know, uh, sex and drugs are a show of exuberance in rock. In the world of classical music, they are more of an escape from the sense of confinement and depression. It's kind of a, a tell-all yeah. about the world of classical but, but, music. But, but but Mozart in the Jungle, we didn't read the book, but, but Mozart in the Jungle is not is about much more than that. And it's, it's a very interesting series. It does clearly depict classical musicians in a broader way than you normally see them depicted. They're, they're, they're you know, three-dimensional figures uh, with various conflicts going on in their lives. And, and a lot of it, uh, I will say that there's one theme in uh, her book that comes through in Mozart in the Jungle, which is how few jobs there are for right. classical right. musicians compared to how many classical musicians so there are. So she played the oboe, right. okay? She said if you take all the major orchestras in America... Yeah. Together, yeah. there are jobs for only a hundred full-time oboists. Yet there are three hundred union oboists in the New York area alone. Yeah. So she's recognizing um, that yeah. you know she can't really make a living right. uh, doing this, and uh, so it, it's it's her life as an oboist, and uh, she was hoping this memoir yeah. would have you know commercial possibilities in in terms of TV or film or something like that. But she wasn't optimistic, she said, because um, no actress would want to play her since drawing music from an oboe requires puffed out cheeks and leaves the musician bug-eyed. Unfortunately, no one looks good playing the oboe. Well, that wasn't a problem. Well, well, we're not sure about that because have you have we ever looked closely at Mark while he's playing? The well, oboe? I'm not saying she's right or she's wrong. We haven't. He looked probably at Mark. looks good while he's playing. The but oboe, they did find knowing an, Mark. They found an actress willing to play the oboe. As Lola Kirk is her name, and uh, so there you go. So that wasn't a, an obstacle. But anyway, in that series, there yeah. is the tension. Between being commercial yeah, sure. and attracting an audience. I, absolutely. And being creative and not giving a flying, yes. you know. Anything. Yeah. Anything yeah. about uh, having an audience that you don't, you know, there's a whole um, episode. You're right. About. You're right. Uh, the guy, he represents himself as being a true artist. And at one point, uh, the guy is the protagonist. A the, real the artist doesn't need it, an right. audience. He says, that you think we're going to attract the audience to this? He says, you know, as a matter of fact, the way we're going we're to perform this without an audience. We're going to prohibit an audience from being there because that, that's not as pure an experience. You don't want to cater to the audience. Well, they were trying to make a point there. Yeah. But, uh, and, and look, that was a great series, uh, A Motor in the Jungle. I mean, a great series. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if this will cause us to go back and read the book. I kind of doubt it. But, uh, you know, we should do that well when we find our next series, as most part in the jungle. Well, yeah. And, and, uh, and you know something else? The music was great in that series. Yes, it, it really was. Yeah. 
Mozart in the and, Jungle. If you haven't watched and, it, and, and, and Dudamel, who, who's the uh, new leader of the New York uh, Philharmonic, I suppose, was kind of the figure that the protagonist in Mozart in the Jungle was based on. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, recommend that. Okay, so uh, that wraps it up. A lot to say, apparently. Uh, but until next week, uh, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. With, with Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you next week.